Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonioan, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. All right, welcome to the Alamo Hour. Today's guest is Eric Cooper. Eric is the executive director of the San Antonio Food Bank and currently serving in somewhat of a role as a little bit of a national spokesperson for food insecurity uh, as a result of the crisis and as a result of some press that San Antonio got. Uh, He joined the San San Antonio Food Bank in 2001 and has since taken it from really being on somewhat of a tenuous footing to really a robust, important, and surprisingly, oddly, well-funded nonprofit in this city. Um, I was reading, doing some research on you, and and before this crisis, 58,000 people a week got help, 77 million meals a year. To me, kind of a nerd about things, 2% overhead for y'all's budget. I mean, that's something that unless people really pay attention, you don't realize how important that is and how, I mean, a, really a compliment to, to your management skills. So thank you for being here. I want to get into some of these things, but thank you for being here. I can't imagine your time commitment, so I'm glad we got a little bit of it. Hey, super excited to be on the show. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great city and we're just so privileged to be a part of it. I think that's a great city. That's why I started this whole thing. I, you and I were sort of joking how it's you've got these San Antonio stories and I moved here and I have met a weird, fascinating array of characters, and I was hoping to share that through this show. And uh, we haven't met before, but you, you're you in such a big spotlight right now. I knew about the San Antonio Food Bank. I've yeah. learned so much more about it, so I want to talk to you about it. But first, I'm going to put you through sort of our top 10 list we go through, give some color commentary on who you are as a person. I've read a bunch of your interviews before you got here today. So, so I want to get sorry about that. Well, you know, <laughs> a lot of it I don't want to retrace steps. So some of it I want to get some new information. So uh, when and why did you move to San Antonio? Well, I had been in food banking for about eight years. I actually got my start in Salt Lake City at the Utah Food Bank and then uh, made my way back home to North Texas. Uh, I grew up in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and there was an opportunity to serve uh, with the North Texas Food Bank, which at that time they had their facility in South Oak Cliff. And I was there a couple of years and had watched as the San Antonio Food Bank somewhat struggled. We went through about four um, CEOs and a two-year period. Two of them had gotten fired and the other two had quit. And the board was struggling. The, the, the food bank was struggling. I figured I couldn't screw it up any worse. And uh, <laughs> they, uh, they offered me the job. At that point, uh, I became their youngest executive director. And, um, you know, I, I, I love an opportunity. And I just saw such an opportunity to serve people in need. Um, I knew I was going to dedicate my life towards putting food on the table for families. And as, as I had traveled South Texas and seen some of our border communities, um, it, it's some of the most extreme poverty in the United States. And so I knew I wanted to, to serve an area that, that had that need. And when the opportunity arose, um, the board offered me the position. Um, you know, I had to take it. And the rest is history. You're still here. It is. It, it seems crazy that, um, you know, now 19 years ago, um, you know, we, we were such a small organization. Um, and there's some parts of that that I miss. Um, you know, we had a $1 million cash budget and 18 employees. And, you know, we were doing about mm, 10 million pounds of food. And so today we're, you know, got about 250 employees and a 
$26 million budget. Wow. And um, we're, we're pushing hopefully 75 to 80 million pounds this year. And um, it's, 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 it's been a lot of growth, but it, it, it's been stable and San Antonio has just trusted us and, and built on us. And um, we're feeding a lot of folks. And uh, unfortunately there's a need and San Antonio had struggled prior to COVID. There's just a super high rate of poverty. And when you think about other cities in the United States, San Antonio has actually the largest percentage of our population living in poverty. Um, and so uh, COVID just pushed so many new people uh, into that space. And uh, most people don't probably fully understand the poverty line, but man, if you're in poverty, you're really hurting. Um, you know, those are folks that, uh, you know, for a single individual, you're making, you know, less than $10,000 a year. Um, so if you're making 12, 13, 14,000 a year, then you're out of poverty. Jeez. You're not making it. Right. right? Yeah. So the working so poor, the working poor. Yeah. So that's, that's the, that's the families. That's kind of our typical client. And in this COVID-19 crisis, so many of those families, just a paycheck away from um, being hungry now find themselves in our lines. I read a, a book called Nickel, Nickel and Dime. It had to be 20 years ago, and it was a fantastic study for, I mean, I was a kid at the time, and I read that and thought, how did these, it really changed my perspective about people who work because people were always so like um, looked down upon who needed assistance. When I read that book, I learned these people are working their butts off, and even still they just they can't get it together. Um I was reading about some of the, you know, look, there are good stories that are coming out of this. You're seeing the best in a lot of people. Uh, one of the stories I thought was really cute and funny was the the girl who gave the lemonade stand money to the food bank. Yeah. Any other kind of funny stories like that where people have just said, I don't have much, but here you, you can have it. Yeah, that's, I mean, again, there's room at the table for everyone to fight hunger. And I think the COVID-19 crisis, I've seen just our community at its best um, where, uh, you know, you've got, individual philanthropists like Harvey Najum giving, you know, quarter, three quarters of a million dollars, USAA giving $1.5 million. Wow. Jeff Bezos gave a hundred million dollars across the United States to food banks. Huh. Um, so just insane, um, you know, generous kind gifts. But then on the other side, um, there's this thought that those that have the least sometimes give the most. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and it's just a, a fact when it comes to percentage of, of their earnings, um, what they have the ability to do. Um, and I'm just humbled by it. I mean, our, our food drives along the South side of San Antonio usually bring in a few more cans of food. Um, and so, you know, little Chloe and her lemonade stand or, um, so many people gave their stimulus checks back. Wow. Um, and probably the most, um, humbling was, a woman gave $40 and, and left a note that she actually was in a car in the line on April 9th when we were at Trader's Village and served 10,000 families. And she said, I sat in the car, I got the food, the food bank didn't fail me, and I was able to nourish myself. But the next week, my boss, who had laid me off, called and said they had a few hours I could start working. And she said, knowing that I was going to get a paycheck, I wanted to pay it forward. And, wow. You know, so she sent in 40 bucks. And I think that's really where we sit at the food bank is kind of the crossroads between those that have and those that don't have. And those that don't have need a little help. And then those that do have 
kind of are in this, this place of caring and sharing. And I think they walk away feeling good about the transaction, just like those that got the food. And it's pretty, pretty cool to be in the middle of that. Not a lot of unhappy customers. No, no. And and Chloe's uh, lemonade stand is like a thousand dollars. I never had that whenever I was a kid. Yeah. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah. Lemonade, the price went up here. Uh, (laughs) Um, you're from North Texas. I'm from North Texas. We talked about that before the show. You know, I have friends that come to San Antonio. I haven't lived here as long as you since 07 for me, but I always say, okay, you go to the Alamo, go do those things, but you need to go see, and usually I'll say the uh, the uh, Japanese tea gardens. I think that's real neat. Go see the old missions, not yeah. just the Alamo. What, what are some of the hidden gems you tell friends or that you think are really just neat uh, hidden gems of San Antonio? You know, I have to first just disclose. I mean, being from North Texas, of course I'm a Cowboys fan. Um, it just comes with being a Texan. Um, but I was never a Mavericks fan. So, okay. uh, you know, I mean, all those years, I just... Uh, I was. It was, the, it was the era of the Celtics and Lakers, so I probably was cheering for the Celtics a little bit. But... Coming to San Antonio, I became a huge Spurs fan. And you can't help because they are the real deal. And um, it is just uh, a wonderful tradition of our city. So to all the Spurs fans, you know, we're we're San Antonio proud. Um, I think our missions are incredible. And most people don't realize that the food bank actually has a partnership with the Mission District, um, the National Park Service, with Mission San Juan. So... Hmm. They had, um, when the missionaries built the missions, they had um, the farmland that provided all the food to all of the missions. Um, And there was um, these 10-acre plots of land. They were called suertes, and they were, um, in Spanish, I guess that's luck. And you were were in a, a drawing to get a little parcel, and they built the original acequia, which is the oldest water rights in the state of Texas, that drafts water off of the San Antonio River and uses that water to, through um, topography, irrigate the the original farmlands of San Antonio. And so, you know, we had our little 25-acre farm out at the food bank. Uh, It was San Antonio's largest urban farm. And the National Park Service reached out and said, we want to restore this land back to its original farming capacity uh, we'll give you a 20-year lease um, for a dollar a year if you'll come work the land. And you can have all the water you want. You can use the land and then use that, those crops to help feed San Antonio's oh, hungry. And so just the triple win, you know, yeah. win, win for them and a win for us and a win for San Antonio families. But definitely if you're on the Mission Trail, you definitely want to see the San Antonio Urban Farm at Mission San Juan. Are y'all using the original irrigation structures? We are. Oh, we are, great. yeah. Yeah, there's a portion of it that we, we totally do it, uh, you know, mission style. And uh, and then we did install some pumps to kind of expedite some sure. efficiencies. And there's some drip irrigation and, and some of the water conservation work that, uh, that our farmers use. But... Um, can you anybody know, come out and, and tour it? Man, anytime, any day. And if you'd like to get in the dirt, um, there's always um, something to be planted or harvested. We've got a pretty good sized citrus orchard that we're trying to get started out there. Any so, bees? Um, there are some bees. Um, and just, I mean, it's just a great day. It's a great day to go out. You see the mission, you see the beauty of the South Side, um, San Antonio River, and then you can work in our farm. Huh. So. I didn't know that. I mean, I learned something new all the time on that, but that's something that's really right up my alley. Um, are you a reader? And if so, what are you reading right now? 
man, I am just trying to catch up with my emails. I mean, that is, uh, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of kind of personal improvement. So Covey, Jim Collins, um, you know, but, uh, to be honest, I am so knee deep in trade publications and, um, you know, I, I'm a definitely a man of faith. So the scriptures have a, a part of my uh, literary diet. Um, my wife is, is the bigger reader. Um, and you know, traveling a bunch, I spend so much time in the car serving 16 counties here in Southwest Texas that I appreciate shows like yours. I mean, podcasts, um, I, they become the lazy readers, um, uh, escape. Yeah. I mean, I, I digest a ton um, but a big fan of, of, you know, TPR and NPR and just, you know, the importance of, of, of journalism in today's environment where truth sometimes gets debated. Um, and, you know, in this COVID-19 crisis, it's interesting because, uh, you know, some of what was happening here because of our need and our efforts to try to, you know, meet that need. Uh, I mentioned on April 9th, this experience. Now we, we've done pop-ups for, you know, forever, 25 years that I've been working in this space. And it's basically uh, a strategy because of refrigeration that you're trying to move a lot of product to families that uh, the bottleneck is some of our supply chain. And so the ability to inform the families ahead of time that we're going to be at this location, come and get food. And then we just load them up in the trunks of their cars. Well, with the COVID-19 protocols, with physical distancing and all that, these pop-ups became the perfect way to get food to families. And so uh, what typically would we'd serve pre-COVID would be about two to 400 families. And right at the onset of COVID, it went to about 2,000 families. Wow. Now, families would go through our website and pre-register, and we started to see as we were getting deeper into the crisis and what that was probably about the third or fourth week, families' paychecks were gone, and we knew that there was a bigger need. And so we we planned on serving 6,000 families, which would be just historic for us at, at one time. And um, 10,000 families actually ended up showing up. And um, if you could imagine 10,000 families, um, that's about 50,000 people um, and we distributed in a day about a million pounds of food. So, you know, we had 25 semi-trucks of food that we just blew through trying to make sure families were fed. And if it wasn't for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of volunteers and, uh, you know, a great facility out there at Trader's Village, um, we wouldn't have been able to do it. But it was the Express News that came out just covering the story that captured the images of that day which, you know, we just kind of knew that it was unprecedented, the number, but we didn't really realize, I think, what had happened until we all read the paper that yeah. night and saw the images like, wow, yeah. That so was that's the day those iconic images that went nationwide were taken. Yeah, yeah, and it just, it, uh, it, 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 it went viral in the sense of, I think, you can't debate a picture, right? Yeah. And, and that picture just captured, I think, the essence of what was happening across the United States. I mean all food banks, all cities are having these unprecedented lines. But um, the fact that the photographer captured an image of so many cars parked in a way waiting for food that I think made everybody realize that 
Um, there's a huge need across America, and, and more needed to be done to feed it. Uh, we're gonna. I mean, we're gonna get into kind of more in depth, but how is the need being filled right now? Are, are you able to fill the need right now? Has there reached a breaking point, or so far so good? Yeah. So we went from feeding the 60,000 people a week pre-COVID to now 120, and we just haven't seen any relief. So, um, you know, I think we definitely are doing more distributions because we learned, um, you know, it takes all day to serve families if you're doing 10,000. So we try to keep them to about 2,000. We just had one this morning out at Toyota Field. um, And we get done in about an hour and a half if there's 2,000 families. But Many more than that. The, the wait time's great. Um, where it's going, we don't know. I mean, I think there's estimates I'm hearing from the chamber, you know, it could be 20 to 24%, uh, you know, unemployment. Um, until our hospitality, hardworking, you know, kind of blue-collar community gets back to work, I think the food bank's going to see a lot more clients than we ever have. And, um you know, we're going to do all we can to meet that need. You asked about food supply. Um, pretty much for eight weeks, um, it's been um, private donations. It's been residents that have kind of funded and supported our response. Um, I've pushed and pushed on, you know, city, state, federal support to come our way. And, and they heard it. They responded. But it's, it's less nimble um, and so uh, we still um, are in the process of landing the state support. They, they um, funded through the Texas Department of Emergency Management uh, $9.1 million to purchase food, which for us will mean you know, several hundred semi-truck loads of product. But to put it in perspective, that's about 50% of our food for a 30-day period. So uh, we blow through it yeah. pretty quickly when we're feeding the number of families we're feeding, which you, I think, hit it in the beginning is I don't think people realize, you know, the food bank on a, on a normal take, we'll go through about $125 million in food in 12 months. I mean, that's kind of uh, what it took to feed 60,000 people a week. And so our budget today, if you're thinking at a 12-month period, we'd need about $250 million in food. And, um, and that's just um, tough to get out of our community, that much support. But for eight weeks here in our city of San Antonio, this, this city stepped up in a major way, and, uh, and people were fed. Well, I had Ron uh, Nuremberg on, I guess, two guests ago, and his little birthday fundraiser. I think he tried to reach a thousand and end up being 64,000. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, Shea Serrano raised a hundred thousand. You know, I don't know if you know GP Singh, but he raised, I don't know, like quarter of a million. Uh, Jose Menendez raised, I think 400,000. Um, I mean, Harvey Najem, uh, and the community, um, through the help of WAI and, and Fox KABB raised, um, 5.4 5.4 million. Jeez. I mean, it's just, it's been, it, it, it's been humbling. It's been like mind blowing. Um, but, but you're like, man, I mean, where will the future be in fundraising? Because we're consuming so much of it and spending so much of it that, um, so many nonprofits are hurting. I mean, yeah. and, and I, and I feel it. I mean, we, 
we do a lot of special event fundraising at the food bank. We've got a golf tournament, a gala, a 5k, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and, and all that's gone. I mean, you don't, you don't have events in the COVID right. environment. So we had to cancel, um, some of our fundraisers, but you know, our cities st- stood up and supported us. We figured out the volunteer components, still hundreds of volunteers coming every day to help us. We, uh, we have, um, strong COVID protocols. So if, if listeners are interested in coming out and volunteering either at a distribution or at the warehouse in our kitchens or even on the, on the farm, um, just give us a call or visit us online at safoodbank.org and uh, we'll put you to work. And that was going to be one of my questions is, is it a bigger challenge right now getting uh, manpower or money? So, you know, all is always a challenge. I think, um, you know, food is actually probably one of our biggest challenges just because of the supply chain being altered. Um, you know, most people, unless you're a, a food bank nerd, um, you know, food food is in two sides. There's the retail side, which is groceries, and then the food service side, which is restaurants. And um, the food service side, because of closures, you know, basically bottlenecked everything. And so... Um, nobody could go out and eat. And so everybody was grocery shopping and we all saw the empty shelves at HEB and Walmart. Well, that much demand on the retail side, then you have down the supply chain, farmers, growers, dairymen, ranchers, all those guys that were selling into the food service side were now trying to pivot to get to the retail side because that's where the customers were. And so some of that started to, to spoil, um, you know, images of farmers, you know, breaking eggs and not hatching chickens and, and cattle farmers here in Texas, just, you know, just, just struggling and, and farmers um, disking under fields. And that should never, ever, ever happen. I mean, you know, food waste is appalling and the food bank is there to try to capture that margin, but because it was so great, you know, we, we couldn't capture it all and it needed a public intervention. And so finally USDA has come up with some strategies to try to procure that food and then drive it into food banks. And, uh, um, but you know, the four things we need, I I guess asking what we need the most is food, time, money, and voice food through those, those food donations from industry uh, or food drives um, time through volunteers, um, obviously financial contributions give us the ability to leverage um, that 98 cents out of every dollar. You know, when people hear $1 equals seven meals, that leverage ability is because folks trust us with their, with their financial yeah. investments and then voice, um, you know, again, getting the word out. So folks listening to this, share it, share it with your, your friends say, Hey, look, we heard Eric talking about the food bank. There's some great opportunities um, you know, getting the word out is, is a big part of our work, helping people understand what's the need, how people can help, um, and then helping families that are struggling get to resources that they desperately need. So, Anyone ever tell you you look like Paul Rudd? Man, so here's, here's, the, here's the joke. It just so, came to me. I know. No, so I've got five kids. Uh, my oldest daughter is 26, and my youngest is 16. And so... Um, yeah, I am Ant Man, um, and uh, to all of their friends, um, yeah, Mr. Cooper, uh, did anyone ever tell you you look like Ant Man? <laughs> so, uh, 
Yeah. I'm real good at celebrity sightings. So it was coming to me. What's your favorite Fiesta event? Man, I would say avoiding the crowds um, is uh, so. So we have, you know, this is a shameless plug, but we have uh, medals for meals, which is uh, an attempt to capture all of the do good metal distributors, sellers um, to, to support our event where people can donate $10 and get, uh, you know, selections of different companies that are producing their metals. And, um, um, it's just a fun, uh, fiesta event. Is that an official fiesta? Event? Yeah. Oh, okay. I, it, uh, it's, uh, every year we usually have a dozen or so folks. And now they say it's 10 bucks. I think it's 25 bucks that you, you get dinner and, and margaritas and, um, but then there's all these medals and you get to get, I think two or three for free for coming to the event. And then they'll have additional medals on sale for 10 bucks. So, well, if uh, it happens, we'll give you some, we just got all ours in. Oh, good, yeah, good. Yeah. 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 You can, uh, yeah. Bring your medals for medals for a cause. So you, you, you did business before you got into the food bank side and we're going to talk about your transition, but one of the things that really stuck with me, which I really appreciated because it's kind of my philosophy as well, is you talk that, um, some of the other food banks or some of the other people in the food industry, I don't know if you, the food um, insecurity provisioning industry, I don't know what you call it, but you said that you've ruffled some feathers by not staying in your lane. I don't know if that comes from you as a human, you as a businessman, you running a nonprofit, but what is kind of your philosophy of what your lane is? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, so I, you know, I was, I was just blessed to have some amazing parents, but, um, you know, as I was leaving the house to make my way in the world, my parents got divorced and had a little brother and sister still at home. And my dad, you know, took off from Argyle to Portland, Oregon, quickly became a deadbeat dad and didn't send child support. So I didn't see him for a few years. Long story short, I found him living homeless on the streets of Portland. I was a small business owner, entrepreneur, my business was blessed because um, I, I took some of the responsibilities that he shirked and made sure that my mom and my little brother and sister got food. And I learned this principle that I think that businesses are blessed when they fill those gaps in the community. It's just, um, you know, somebody has to answer the prayer and cry of the poor. And, um, and so learning that principle and finding my dad, I realized that, um, my dad got food because a woman had a catering business and whatever food wouldn't sell, she'd drive the streets of Portland and feed the homeless. Mm. And so, I mean, literally going the extra mile. And so I, I came home thinking, man, what was I going to do to make sure people got nourished? And so really is a tribute to my dad and, and I had sold my business and, and felt like, well, let me, let me do some, some work in this space of nonprofits. And once I got into it, I realized, man, I was more jazzed about it and helping people. Um, but there was this opportunity just to, to bring some, some, some business strategies, um, you know, really in, in, in the businesses that I was a part of, I shopped for venture capital and I knew what ROI and just kind of what investors were looking for and I just treated the food bank the same way. It was just like, what's our ROI? What can we put out? And, and if you're concerned about administrative overhead, then I want to be the most efficient nonprofit so that there's no, 
you know, no competition, right? There's no reason why you wouldn't want to give to the food bank. Um, and, and it just started to work. Um, and, uh, it's just been this amazing life fulfilling opportunity for me to, to, to just work in this space of putting food on people's table, but then learning the nonprofit board, you know, accounting business side of, than the food industry from, from field to fork, every, every link of the food chain and USDA and agriculture and say, how can we continue to improve and how can we continue to drive efficiencies? So um, being a little bit of a disruptor um, and, but, you know, uh, disruption for um, efficiencies and improvement, not for, for chaos and confusion and destruction. Uh, I think um, there's a, there's a term in nonprofits that, you know, you should stay in your lane and you shouldn't suffer from mission creep. Um, and, you know, I guess I'm creepy, man. I just, uh, I, I just, I, I never thought of it as staying in your lane, but staying maybe on the, on the, on the highway and that there's times when you need to, to shift lanes. Um, and, and maybe you get in the, the left lane because it's a little faster. And um, I think that's a good segue to the mission creep, as I understand it, has to do with the fact that y'all do more than provide food. Y'all help people get benefits. You help job training. You have the farm. You have a, a, a an arm that helps people who qualify get vet, uh, vet service for their animals and food for their animals. What are some of the kind of give us the world of what all the food bank is providing. Cause I never knew that until I started doing more research. Into yeah, it. it's a crazy place. So, I mean, I, I think we try to build around this framework that, that people should, um, you know, work according to their ability and receive according to their need. So that that's a philosophy. Um, and that with good nutrition and physical activity, you could heal the world, right? Um, there's four big barriers to nutrition, income, geography, um, knowledge, can you prepare the food and then just all the marketing in the food industry and just what's complicated. But end of the day, when families are hungry, it's about food for today. Um, and our framework of today, tomorrow, and a lifetime is, is how we move families from crisis to self-sufficiency. Families might walk in or go through our website or call us um, and we're going to address their needs with physical food, either through groceries, through one of our 550 distribution partners, uh, or meals. Um, but while we're doing that, we're helping those families then connect with food for tomorrow. And that's really helping them understand the public benefits like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, or Women, Infants, and Children, WIC, or the Children's Health Insurance Program, or Medicaid, or temporary assistance to needy families. There's a lot of federal programs, even for seniors. There's a program, long-term care, which for us, it might be a food benefit, but then it also might be a healthcare benefit that can then strengthen the home. And, you know, so many families, it's about shifting expenses. It's offsetting costs. If we can provide utility assistance, then maybe there's more money for food. Um, I never felt like we actually had to physically put food on the table directly, if we were providing a support to a family, that could indirectly put food on the table. Our third tier of strategy is really food for a lifetime. And that's about that conversation about work. Um, 
And we meet so many hardworking families in San Antonio that um, um, they're the working poor as we talked and, and helping them. How can they get better skills? How can they sharpen their saw? How can they talk to their employer about an increase? Um, um, and then there's a portion that struggle with employment. Maybe they, you know, they lost their job and they're, they're looking and, then there's those that are unskilled. And so we have training programs. Uh, we have three culinary schools that we run in connection to our production kitchens. Um, individuals can go through that training. We'll get them jobs in, in the hospitality food service community. Uh, we also have a warehouse training program. So if you want to learn how to operate a forklift or a pallet jack or you know learn sanitation or inventory, um, and we can get you jobs at you know local distributors. So... Um, the last part of our food for a lifetime is nutrition education. We teach cooking skills and how to get the best nutrition for the dollar and really try to move people forward. And, um, there's that old saying, if you, if you give a man a fish, you fed him for a day. If you teach him how to fish, you fed him for a lifetime. And, and I like just to frame it that if she doesn't know that, you know, that you're going to pack a tuna fish sandwich, she won't meet you at the dock. Right. <laughs> um, she wants to, she wants to, her babies are hungry. And, and, and if we don't eat today, you know, we can't learn to fish tomorrow. Yeah. Right. And so it's really this tandem approach that you're like, look, let us give a fish while we're teaching to fish. And if you do that, you can stabilize a household um, and you can get them moving in the direction that they want and, and they need. Um, but too many times I think, we package it as a, as a, it's a, or it's either you teach them to fish or you give them a fish and surely teaching is the better thing. And I think it's not a, or equation, it's an, and, and you have to do both. And that's what the food bank's determined to do. And, and you have such a, I mean, you have such a passion for this. I wish people could watch you talk about this. I mean, you really do. And I might be being presumptuous, but I feel like there's got to, it has to be, it, does this come from somewhere more than just your father's story? I mean, th you've got a real passion for helping and feeding people and you've got a very compelling story, but is this faith driven? Is this how you were raised? Is it, is it purely the, the, the situation with your father? You know, I think it's, uh, it's all of us are pretty complicated recipes and lots of different ingredients that, that go into it. And, um, I think, Again, I, I think if I'm not going to solve hunger with a canned good, it's, it's, a, it's really about a community of compassion. And, and if I can help with the conscience of our community, um, you know, I get the privilege of lecturing at UTSA or Trinity or Incarnate Word. And, and oftentimes I'm saying, look, you're the future. If I could have more NBAs of conscience, which led to more CEOs of conscience, where people thought about sustainability in the sense of employment and opportunities for everyone and that people have what they need to meet their basic needs. Um, bottom line, I think my work is about bringing understanding and I have an understanding based on the people I meet that it wasn't a decision they made um, or, you know, or, this conversation of the worthy or unworthy poor, or should I help this guy or not? And um, to me, I love our city. I love our people. And 
I think we need less judgment and more understanding. Um, and um, when you walk the streets I walk, when you meet the people I meet, it, it helps me understand them and and it just compels me to act. And I think that people that don't act, most of the time they just don't understand. And it's a privilege to help them come to the realization that I have. And I think our city is going to be much better off when all of us know our neighbors and we're doing what we can to help them. There's a crazy thought, right, that is, um, you know, do, do they need us or do we need them? In both sides, is it is it the person that needs help or the person that gives help that's transformed? And I think all of us are better when we're selfless, when we're sharing and we're caring. Um, there's some statistics around volunteers living longer mm. than people that don't volunteer. Um, their quality of life is enhanced. So um, if you're feeling low or discouraged or overwhelmed or depressed or especially in this COVID-19 environment, it's easy. The mental health side of this crisis can get the best of us. But the quickest and easiest way for you to cure what ails you is to start serving. And um, it will transform you. It will cure you um, in ways that you never thought possible. You're going to get me off of what I'm supposed to be doing here, which is asking you questions. I could just listen to you. You've got a very soothing, like NPR uh, way about it's, you. It's but the Paul Rudd coming out. No, it's a, you. You have found the perfect job for who you are to the extent I've gotten to know you in this short amount of time. Um, your your passion for what you do is is very contagious, and I think that is probably why the food bank has done so well under your leadership. Have you seen any sort of differences in community between your work and uh, Utah, your work in Dallas, your work in San Antonio. I mean, I don't think anybody that's asking for help deserves to be in that position. But from a community, I think communities have their own language, they have their own feel, and they have their own identity. What's been different about San Antonio? Yeah, I think um, it, San Antonio, from a from a nonprofit collaborative sense, you know, Dallas. Um, the city kind of worked in clicks and, and circles. And if you were in the right place, then you had opportunities. Um, and Utah was a bit of the same. I mean, it just, there were, there was a lot of turfism and San Antonio nonprofits. Um, they've got it going on. And I, I think it's, um, partially because the need is so great that no one nonprofit has all of the answers. And so we all work together and then I think what I would say our forefathers, if you will, um, you know, the, the mazes, the Grehees, um, you know, all of those red Macombs, I mean, all these individuals that really loved our city and put us in a trajectory of, of, of leadership and mindfulness of, of giving back. Um, and, and it's cool when you start to see the second, third, fourth generations kind of now carrying that torch. Um, but I, I, I do think that, you know, San Antonio is segregated. We, you know, we, we have the haves and we have the have nots. And I think it's tough when you see those statistics, those realities. I mean, when San Antonio this last year was ranked number one, and the percentage of people living in poverty, we beat out Detroit. Mm. Um, and you think of like, man, Detroit, Ugh. 
you know, that's not what I think anyone would assume. Right. That you're like, really? I don't, I don't believe that. I don't, that can't be right. You know? Do you think um, this is a, do you think it's an education issue? Do you think it's a access to jobs that pay a living wage? I mean, I, you know, Ron was on the show and he was talking about that this is exacerbated, highlighted issues that were present in our community. And it gives us an opportunity as we come out to address them because maybe you have changing mindsets of people who said, I'll never be in those shoes who are now in the food bank lines. Yeah. What do you think sort of the crux for our community to kind of pull up um, the have nots, as you said? Yeah, I just definitely, I mean, people that live in poverty have lots of issues, right? I mean, it's, it's complex. Uh, they might have, you know, lost their job or they're underemployed. They might be, you know, having their utilities shut off or they've got a lot of debt or health crisis. Um, but someone that's hungry, you know, they just have one issue. And mm -hmm. until you solve that one issue, again, you address hunger, then you can start to address the, the complexity of poverty and, and it's, it's education, it's, it's housing, it's childcare, and it's opportunity, opportunity for a sustainable living wage. Um, that's what families want, right? Um, you know, you, you mentioned nickel and dimed. I mean, I, I'm always blown away at how hard, um, families work and yet struggle to make it. Um, I pulled up one day at the, a stoplight and I looked over and this amazing um, Hispanic gentleman looked like a grandfather sitting in the back of a work truck and um, you know, I could see his gray hair and just his, his hands, you know, they were just so mighty and, you know, from working outside and, and I just sat watching him and he was just a good looking guy. And I thought, you know, he's got grandkids probably, he's got a wife, um, and he's working doing landscaping outside in the Texas heat. And, and he wants what everybody wants. You know, he wants opportunity um, and has those same needs. Um, probably woke up before us and will go to bed after us. Um, and yet probably makes a wage that's far less than, than many of us have. And so um, we have an opportunity to fix that. And um, I, I hope that coming out of the COVID-19 crisis, our city says enough's enough, right? Um, just before COVID, right, we were talking about sick leave and, you know, a portion of the city saying bad idea to extend sick leave to workers. Um, you know, I mean, not only that, suing the city. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was more than just a, a whine and a moan and a groan. It was. A, it's a lawsuit. Yeah. 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 Think about that in the COVID-19 environment where, you know, not going to work means not getting a paycheck, which means not paying your bills, which means when you have symptoms that could be COVID related, do you not go to work? I mean, so when you think about the outbreaks in a pandemic, you want to have a safety net that allows your employees to protect their income so that they don't go under, so they don't become homeless, that they don't have their world start to unravel because a child is sick or they need, they have a mental health day. Um, and I think for so many of the people that I talked to that were against that, they like me have never missed a paycheck from showing up, not showing up to work because right. I was sick. And so unless you can relate to that, unless you understand like 
that hourly worker not only gets nickel and dime when they punch in when they get there, but they get nickel and dime when they punch out. And if they don't punch in at all, that loss of income means some other day during the week, they're going to have to try to make that up mm. if they want to make their car payment, if they want to make their utility payment. And I guess it's just equity, opportunity, um, what does it take to make it in our city? And, and I believe that everyone should have those basic needs met. Um, and it shouldn't be um, about a lifestyle, but it should definitely be about life. And life should be able to be sustained. And right now in our city, there's a lot of people that are ex- reaching out for the lifeline that the food bank is providing. And our city's stepping up. I hope after COVID, many employers really think about that sustainability and offer that they have for their employees. I was reading an interview and you talked about since 2001 till present, some of the changes you've seen. And you said it it used to be more of the people that didn't have a job or the people applying. And then it became people that were employed, but just not making enough money to make ends meet. What about you? You seem very in tune in sort of the attitudes of people um, as it relates to the people that are in need. Have you seen attitudes towards the needy change? I feel as though over the last 10 years, you've seen this very much us versus them become more us versus them. Have you seen that? Do you feel that that's sort of a, a growing rift? I think that, um, yeah, I mean, you hit it. It's just starting at the Utah food bank and, and, and then moving to Dallas and coming here. I think, you know, at, our strategy was always like, man, if we just got people working, if we got them a job, then they would be out of our line, you know? And, uh, that was really the answer to poverty was just, um, I think the Reagan era, right? The, the solution to welfare is a job, right? And there's some minor truth to that, but I would say, you know, the answer to poverty is, 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 W-A-G-E, you know, that that is really what it's about. And when you debate a minimum wage, the minimum wage should have a maximum age. It's great if you're living at home and it's just a high school job. Um, But once you're a parent um, or you're trying to make it in the economy, the minimum wage is inadequate. And a lot of employers would say, well, hey, you know, I pay 12 bucks an hour and, you know, but... But when you're paying 12 bucks an hour and you don't guarantee 40 hours or you don't offer health care, um, you know, can your employees make it? And and is that what you'd want for your child? Um, you know, I know you're expecting and, uh, you know, the future for our kids, you know, the opportunities we want them to have. Um, I think if more of us thought of it like, hey, what would I want my kid? What would I want my sister? What would I want my little brother um, that we're family, we're a big family and, and everyone's needs need to be met. We just have to, I think, balance out from those that, that maybe have, um, and, and see if we can get those that don't have, um, brought up. And, um, I think that's our opportunity for our city. You, you discussed recently some of the challenges that the food bank is having as it result as it relates to the federal government, some available grant money that's gone out, and there was a little bit of a debate, um, a little bit of controversy swirling around. Was that the USDA gave a grant? It was it was fairly significant, thirty nine point one million, if I recall, 
um, to a event planning group, which maybe they're the best in the world, but you, you discussed it a little bit. And if I'm reading through the tea leaves, my guess is there seems to be some confusion or some lack of transparency on how that process was being managed. Um, what are you running into? What are you dealing with from the Fed side, from the state side? What are the, what are some of the challenges you're facing? Well, I tell you, we're so privileged to partner with the United States Department of Agriculture, and we run a lot of their programs and benefit from when they're rescuing a market and buying up, you know, commodities, then those commodities oftentimes stock our shelves. Um, and as the crisis started to, to backlog those industries for dairy and produce and protein um, and food service started to take the hit. You know, many of our food dis- food distributors were are literally operating at about 15% of what they used to be. And so USDA's uh, coronavirus farm assistance program that was rebranded as the coronavirus food assistance program and is now called um, uh, Farms to Families Food Program um, was stood up so quickly that I don't want to armchair quarterback anybody, but You know, in theory, this program was to buy up those surpluses, bring back some of the employees to those food distributors, divert the food to food banks, and then as the economy was strengthened, that would shift from the food banks back to food service restaurants. So all you were trying to do was connect the dots. And USDA released an RFP. We worked with hundreds of food distributors that know the industry, handle produce, handle dairy, handle protein, who are really hurting. And when they put in their bids that was given a week's period, and then a week later they were awarded, we learned that most of the companies we worked with didn't get contracts. And uh, and there's companies across the United States that, that we would have never guessed landed these government contracts. Now, I, I'm fair competition guy, you know, if they want it, that's great. Um, and the, the reality is, is they're funded to provide food that we'll get and, um, we need them to be successful. And so we're working with any company that got an award through this process to try to say, look, let me explain how it works and, um, you know, where these trucks are and, and where the food is and how we can, you know, work together to make sure that the, the contractor is successful. But it's definitely added another layer of stress and um, a lot of controversy because there's a lot of great food service companies that could have really used those funds. Um, I think everything in this crisis has been a, a little uh, uh, additional crisis when you think of the, the, the PPP program and, you know, the Lakers giving back money and all of that kind of you know, what did it look like on the front end? What does it look like today? And, um, you know, hopefully some of this trickles down to actually get to the intended targets and uh, hit the food bank. I'm going to work as hard as I can to ensure that success is had when it comes to getting food for the families we feed. I want to talk to you about what I thought was the most impressive statistic. I saw 2% overhead. I'm going to kind of just mess with you, but either 
y'all have a ton of funding or super low overhead. How are you able to run? Um, and does overhead include salaries, right? Yeah. So it's, I mean, so all nonprofits are graded the same way. And um, there's a lot of great watchdog organizations like Charity Navigator yeah. and others that, you know, put that up front. Now, I've been a believer in that. Before even Charity Navigator existed, we'd put our, our audited financials on our website. But it's, it's called something, the like a 1040. Oh, yeah, your 990. 990 so, yeah, okay. yeah. So, so the, the 990 is basically a nonprofit's tax return. That's our equivalent of the 1040. And, um, you know, it's just important to be transparent, you know, like, hey, if, if you don't have anything, if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have anything to hide. And so I know we go about our work with a high level integrity. Um, you know, most nonprofits are probably, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10%. You know, there's definitely charities out there that are 30, 40, 50%. And, and I think just like anyone that's making an investment in the stock market, do your homework, know who you're supporting. Um, and if you don't, and you're just, you know, want to be Santa Claus and you don't care, that's fine, you know. Um, but if you're an astute investor and you want to drive impact and change, you know, do your homework. Um, you know, uh, we are so blessed. Uh, we, we literally have a thousand volunteers a week that come through our doors. Uh, I've got 40 guys that are incarcerated, um, currently serving time, that are released from prison every day. They come to the food bank, they put in a full eight hour day, then they go back to prison at night. It's part of their transformation and restitution and learning. All these guys are gonna be released within 24 months. They're all gonna be needing jobs. They're gonna be needing skills. They need to be given a second chance. Obviously, if they're not, uh, if nobody wants to rent to them, no one wants to employ them, then they're gonna get back into trouble and they're going to be costing taxpayers a ton of money as we incarcerate them. Right. So, and and all of these felons are working for me. They're all nonviolent. The number one reason why they're incarcerated is either possession, drugs, or alcohol. Um, so, those two addictions, um, you know, can sometimes give someone a, a life sentence of poverty, and. I just believe in, in, in redemption. I believe that people can change, um, but I also believe in efficiency. So if I can get these 40 guys to work for me, drive my efficiencies down while they're feeling good about giving back to the community, it's just a win-win-win. And uh, combined with that and, and a great staff that really work hard and a board that holds us accountable. I mean, every year uh, my board's you know after me to – keep within the margins they set. And, um, you know, we've been able to do it, uh, for many, many years. Um, what, where are y'all at sort of in terms of your expansion? I mean, are y'all in terms of property and warehousing and staffing? Are y'all about where y'all need to be or are y'all busting at the seams? What's the next kind of step? It's a great question. So, you know, we're so blessed at our headquarters to, to, uh, 151 old highway 90 to have, uh, 40 acres. That's our campus. 25 acres, like I said, is under agriculture. The warehouse is 210,000 square feet. Um, and we've got a, a large-scale commercial kitchen inside the facility um, with teaching gardens and classrooms and all that kind of stuff. But just before COVID, 
um, our need to ramp up our, our meal production out of the, the warehouse kitchen uh, was, was needed. Um, now, I'll pause for a minute. We do have a branch facility in New Braunfels, great little kind of mini food bank, does everything that we do in San Antonio up there including a culinary school and kitchen. It actually does the Meals on Wheels for Comal County, um, runs Daisy Cares, serves a lot of families. Then we have a venison processing facility in Garden Ridge that allows us to capture wild game yeah. and process that as a great lean protein for families in need. Again, bending the cost curve, trying to keep within efficiencies. Then our main facility, and then we also have then a kitchen at the Campus Haven for Hope. So we feed the homeless there three meals a day and run a culinary school there. And then our last facility is in Pearsaw down in Frio County where we have a produce packing shed, which is really dedicated to working the agriculture community and getting some of those fresh fruits and vegetables um, from farmers to families in need. So all of those are our properties, but there was a growing trend in, in the food industry, um, and it's best described as a grocer rant. Um, so it's the fusion of the grocery store and a restaurant. Um, there's new Kroger's that are being built that have seven restaurants within the Kroger mm -hmm. store. Uh, you've seen in our local HEBs, right, the growing footprint of more refrigerated and less dry um, the concept of meal simple, right? HEB knows that it's about convenience. All of us in this economy, we're operating at such a fast pace that, you know, nutrition and convenience can sometimes run at odds. Um, and when the dollar menu uh, is, 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 is too convenient, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to take its toll, right? You know, high rates of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, all those are health issues. And so for those that are income able to get HEB's meal simple, right? A great nutritious meal that's quick, it's fast, it's tasty, um, is what was compelling us to say, what could we be doing at the food bank to provide a meal simple to, to the working poor? And so we broke ground on a 60,000 square foot culinary center back in January um, that will give us the ability to do about 50,000 meals a day. Wow. It'll also allow some additional protein from the venison processing. It'll have a large um, culinary school and, and um, nutrition education component. But it's on the 40-acre campus. It's under construction right now. Now, how we pay for it, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of stress. Um, obviously, all of the support we've been getting has been COVID-related, so... Um, capital campaign fundraising uh, is probably not going to be very fun uh, in the next month or year, um, but we're committed to it. We're building it, and it'll be a huge weapon in the fight against hunger. I wish we had it opened now. Um, How much needs to be raised for that? So it's a $17 million project, and um, you know we've probably got about four. Um, so it's, um, it's a lot of stress, but I'm trying to just, uh, to take it in stride. There's some great foundations that are committed to it. I just, you know, we've got to deal with the crisis at hand and keep, keep that, keep that moving. But, um, you think about San Antonio as kind of a hub city when it comes to disasters. If, 
our our worst nightmare would be a, a, a summer of hurricanes. Um, you know, if if we have another Harvey, um, you know, that will drive people from the Gulf Coast into our city. And, and we're the strategy in partnership with the Red Cross and the city of San Antonio to stand up mega shelters, mm. which will need to help shelter people in place, but under COVID-19 protocols, keeping people distanced in a mass shelter, um, should there be a natural disaster like a hurricane, tornado, flooding, any of that, um, I, I just pray that uh, that Mother Nature gives us a break, uh, um, but that kitchen would give us the ability to meet really any of the food production needs for any disaster that might come our way, including COVID. I mean, we're doing a lot of delivered meals. We're doing a lot of meals at congregate sites in addition to home-delivered uh, groceries, but uh, having an asset like that culinary center in the future will be a big part of San Antonio's food security. Um, I didn't know about that. Really, I didn't know so much about what y'all do and, and learning about y'all are such an integral part of our community, not from just the food insecurity standpoint, but all those other things y'all offer, which is, it's really fantastic. It, I think it's a testament to why y'all have been such a successful nonprofit because y'all are such a success in our community. So thank you for coming here. I want to end this. Uh, I try to keep these around an hour, but one thing in one of your interviews, somebody was asking, how can they help in these times? And you kind of go through the, the the volunteer, the money, and then at the end you just said, otherwise just be kinder and smile more. Why is that an important philosophy for you, and how do you think that affects people at large? Yeah, I just think um, that's the answer, right? If, if you're just kind, if you're nice, um, there's 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 miracles, right? It's it's it's, it's connecting with people, and um, you know, kinder, gentler, um, smiling, um, the 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 shortest distance between two people uh, is a smile. So, Well, Eric, uh, I didn't really know what to expect. I've heard so much about you. You're such a transformational character, really, in the nonprofit space, but also just in, the. I think, the identity of who we are as a city of being good to each other. And, and we stick together. San Antonio kind of differently than a lot of cities stick together, and I think people like you are the reason why. So, uh, thank you for being here. Once we get outside of that, you're back on the path of building, you know, monster facilities and moving the food bank forward. I hope you'll come back on and we can talk more about what's going on with you all. Um, so that's going to do it for this episode. My guest wish list continues, and you hit one of them, uh, Shea Serrano. We're trying to get on the show, and and he's a big a big supporter of the food bank. Coach Pop, I don't think he'll ever come on the show, but we're trying. <laughs> uh, and Patty Mills is doing great things for the city, and I think it's great to see Patty Mills really immersing himself in our city as our city, and not just a guy who plays basketball here. Uh, so that's going to do it for this episode, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo Hour. You are all what make this city so great. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash alamohour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, Viva San Antonio!